Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. We have an awesome show for you today. This man needs no introduction. He serves as the portfolio manager for the FPA Crescent Fund. Welcome to the show, Steve Romick. Thank you, Matt. Steve, a little congrats is in order. You guys just passed a big milestone 25 years yeah old you don't look that old old you don't look that old <laughs> that's amazing you know we we've said many times on this podcast that the biggest compliment you can give anyone in our business is just surviving you know being able to to exist through market cycles so we'd love to talk about it today so listeners if you're not familiar with FPA this is a firm that dates back to the 1950s the origins i think you joined mid 90s and have been running this fund, which now sits over 15 billion and firm wide over 30 ish billion dollars. So, but you started out as a journalist? No. What did you study undergrad? I studied education. Education. Okay. Well, I'm an engineer, so neither of us are really doing exactly what you started out as. But a lot of value, guys, I've heard you reference this. I know Uncle Warren Buffett has also referenced this, but talk about when you really got struck by the value lightning bolt. People talk about it as, you know, inoculation. Was there a period where you really kind of developed your investment approach? You know, I can't point to any one event and there wasn't a, certainly wasn't a bolt. For me, value is just this idea of, I hate losing money. And even as a kid, and I go and my friends would, when I was in college, we'd go to, we'd go and gamble someplace. And I was the guy that didn't gamble. I mean, you have to think about this idea of if you gamble, and as I told my friends at the time, they can't afford to build billion dollar hotels because they lose money in Vegas. Right. So the idea of, of gambling didn't appeal to me because I felt it was more likely to lose and win. And then dovetail that with the idea that my feeling of winning, say I won a thousand dollars, I'd feel like I dodged a bullet. Just like, oh, whew, I didn't lose. But if I lose a thousand dollars, it would just rack my gut. It's miserable. So the feeling of losing money hurts more than it feels good to win. And that's just always, I've, I've always been that way. And so that's actually kind of expressed itself with the way that you guys have designed your Crescent Fund, which is, feel free to correct me, but kind of a go-anywhere fund that is meant to kind of get equity-like returns, but with, with lowered volatility and risk. Is that right? Is that a good well, way to say it? With less, well, less risk, but defining risk as a permanent, permanent capital, we don't consider volatility to be risk for us. But it's a worthwhile conversation and a rabbit hole. We could we could go down and talk about risk and what it means to different people and why I think for most people actually is risk. But for us, risk is a permanent impairment of capital. We want to generate equity rates to return and avoid permanent impairments of capital. Okay. Well, it's it's funny you mentioned that because by the way, it 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 does express itself. You guys end up having lower volatility. I mean, yes. the long term numbers are really impressive. And you guys have done a good job of it. It's funny you mentioned that about gambling because I have the opposite gene where I'll take as much risk and gamble if you give me anything to possibly bet on. But that's why I'm a quant. I learned that lesson early. I lost and lost and lost and said, okay, I need rules for what I have to do. But that's that's a good lesson for me to learn. But if you frame it that way, I feel the same way because you said, if you give me the money, well, if you give me the money, I'll gamble your money. <laughs> All right. So let's talk a little bit about it. So you guys... I think you would characterize yourself as a value investor, but I have a quote from you from a shareholder letter that I think will let you kind of use a jump off point where you said, buying growing businesses with an adequate margin of safety is just as much a value investment as buying, say, a financial firm at a discount to tangible book or a holding company at a discount to readily ascertainable net asset value. We've held all three types of investments in our portfolio over the last decade. I think when people hear value, often people think of something like it just has a low PE ratio. But talk a little bit about your kind of prism, your framework for how you think about picking value investments. Value investing is to us simply investing with a margin of safety, believing that you've made an investment where it's where it's hard to lose money over time. I mean, over any short periods of time, anything can happen. So that's really what it stands for for us. And it can wear a lot of different cloaks. 
And and as you just mentioned in that quote, you know, from that shareholder letter that I had written, you know, a while back, value investing, though, when you think about it, has has morphed over the years. It used to be a point in time where it was really all about the balance sheet. I mean, going back to Graham and Dodd and thinking about the margin of safety and buying net net, you know, the, the companies that are trading below net net working capital. The old cigar butts. The old cigar butts, and that was a not unreasonable way to invest. You know, certainly. Today, the world's changed, and it's changed because of technological innovation. The world changes so quickly. The life cycle of a company is it exists in an index in the S&P 500, for example, is shorter or as short as it's ever been, and it's continuing to decrease. So businesses are being sent, you know, put out to pasture. I mean, just I mean, very obvious conversation with center around retail and the disruptive influences from the likes of Amazon and other online companies. So of late, we had we had Toys R Us bankruptcy. You know, this year, and we have Sears restructuring that's currently what remains to be seen whether it's going to be a liquidation or it's going to be a restructuring. And that's because these businesses aren't what they used to be because of a competitor that's come in. So I did something just for fun and and education a year ago. It's our year-end shareholder letter. And I, I measured technological innovation over the last 6,000 years. Why 6,000 years? Because it was 4,000 BC where you had the invention of the wheel. And all I did was just take public data for what others have defined as being in new inventions and, and technological innovation. And I just created a scatter plot over the last 6,000 years. And you can see the increasing density as you move through time. So you go from the Stone Age to the Iron Age to the Bronze Age. And, you know, and there's things like, I wasn't making a valued judgment as to what those inventions were. I mean, indigo was in there, for example, along with the steam engine. Clearly, very different kinds of things. But in the last 50 years, we have seen more new inventions, more technological innovation, more ways to use the technology in a disruptive way than we've ever seen in history. And businesses, just by buying something on book value, book value can erode pretty quickly if you can't get a return on that capital investment. Let's take Warren Buffett's company, Berkshire Hathaway, a defunct textile mill. I mean, he made money on it because he bought it at such a such a good discounted margin of safety, but it got disrupted by manufacturing offshore. And so he's able to sell the land and the building for, you know, at, at a profit to, you know, ultimately what he had paid for it. And so it ended up being not his, his worst investment or certainly didn't lose money, but it certainly wasn't his best investment either. So when we think about making money, we think about value investing, we want to make sure that we have some kind of tailwind where the business is going to be better, at least in 10 years than it is today, ideally. I'm trying to think of like unpacking that just 10,000 foot view on the life cycle of companies is the main reasoning just that knowledge compounds over time and, and the impact of technology? Like, what, what do you think is just the creative destruction? Is it globalization? Like, what's the reason that companies just don't last as long over the years? Do you have any good thoughts? Probably not. Yeah. I have some bad thoughts. <laughs> I mean, it's sim- simply that, I mean, you, we were at a place where certain things get accelerated. If you think about life sciences and how that started with just a cancer and cancer drugs, we started just chemical compounds, you know, that were. Were, were very simple, you know, compounds where you, you came out of mustard gas in, in World War One, and it, they found that it was killing cancers along with everything, all the other rapidly replicating cells, and that morphs, you know, through time, and it becomes you get a much denser molecule, and you end up with, you know, bios, you know, biosimilars, and now we've mapped the human genome, and now there's tremendous advances that are going to take place in the life sciences, such that cancer, I believe in the next you know, couple of decades, in many forms of cancer, which is really a number of hundreds of diseases, will be treated as a chronic illness just to arrest that development. So we're at this 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 cusp of things where, where we you know where so many new things have happened. And so we've been able to take advantage of it. I mean, just because of, you know, you know, DARPA created the internet, think about how you know, others came along and built a platform on top of that with the likes of AOL and then and Google, et cetera, and how 
technology that goes back to the 70s and 80s, you know, just became so much more and became disruptive in somebody else's hands. And so I think that it's more, it's very important to understand what can disrupt you as, as much as it is to understand how can one benefit from that technology as a user of that technology. You're sitting with an iPhone, you know, I think that's an iPhone, it's upside down in front of you. And that didn't exist, what, 12 years ago. And now you have more computing power in your on sitting here on the desk in that one little device than you had on your on your desktop twelve years ago, and there's fears and sometimes these fears get overblown and and because that form these form factors change and they disrupt other things. So iPads became a very you know, became a very big thing and it's oh well PCs are dead laptops are dead and so Microsoft is is dead. And sometimes, you you know, you, you throw out the good with the bad and you assume the worst. So every good idea I find over time gets taken to an extreme and people become too optimistic. And and similarly, conversely, I should say, the ideas get taken down, you know, the other direction where people have great fear that something is, is not going to ever be good again. So you look back in the early part of this decade and, and Microsoft had done nothing in 10 years. You know, the earnings had grown in the high teens. And here is there's a point in time where the new form factors of iPads are, you know, are going to eat their lunch. You're going to move away from Windows-based ecosystem. You've got a problem with, you know, the clouds can eat other parts of their lunch, even though they were number two in the cloud. And you had, you know, a CEO who was, you know, lighting money on fire and you know, making investments in companies like Nokia, et cetera. And now a lot of things have changed. You end up with, you know, an office, you know, which was a huge, a huge breadwinner for them. You know, it was going to be viewed as, as going away because Google Docs was going to take over that too. Well, we now have Office 365. We pay a subscription fee for it. It's better now for them than it's ever been. You know, clearly cloud, they've been, been successful. A new CEO's there in place and, and the Windows ecosystem is not entirely dead. And I actually now own a Microsoft service, which I love using. Mm. I'm a subscriber. It's interesting because I, I think, didn't Microsoft just retake the top market cap company title, I think recently it might have. They go back and forth on occasion. When you said technologically developments, I thought you were pointing my coffee cup. I have, I don't know if you guys remember the old coffee cups you used to have, like plug into the wall. This is a wireless ember. If you're listening, anybody, it keeps your keeps your coffee or tea warm. Good Christmas gift. But anyway, I digress. So talk to me a little bit about y'all's process. So you've been doing this for a while. When you talk to investors and value folk, everybody's got a little bit different process. You know, some like me are a lot more quant based. Some people it's chatting with management, et cetera. You and I were talking about used to follow hundreds and hundreds of banking companies around the the world. What's the general framework? You got a, you got a team now. How's the day-to-day look for you guys? There's a team of 11. There's 10 research analysts on the team. The three portfolio managers, myself, Mark Landecker, and Brian Selmo, are analysts as well. We do work on companies. We visit companies. We build our own models. You know, we're, we're, we're visiting with companies you know, and talking to them constantly, as well as people around the companies. Our job is to understand the business first before we can really start to, to think about investing in any business, understand what it looks like, the business and its industry. And that's what the 10 of us are doing, plus the help of a journalist we've had on team in some form or another for more than a decade, where they help us gather information that is more qualitative around a company and its industry and help do due diligence, operational checks you know, for us in different companies that we're looking at. But if I were to oversimplify it, let's take it into two parts. Because you said we can go anywhere. So go anywhere can be a recipe for disaster because there could be lots of places for you to lose, a lot more, lot more places for you to lose money domestically, abroad in small cap, mid cap, large cap, in different industry groups, in different asset classes, whether it be equities, preferred stocks, junior debt, senior debt, bank debt, dip loans, et cetera. We bought whole loans in 2010 and 11 from, from banks that were selling them you know, thousands of mortgages. These are not mortgage-backed securities, but the loans themselves. I mean, even a, as part of a big basket, a $4,500 loan in, in Detroit that we made many multiples on. It was just part of a basket. So we look for... Equities, and we look for debt, you know, and over to, to drive the portfolio to wedge it between it. And equities, we largely consider two categories. The high quality growing businesses that we consider compounders, businesses that we are confident that the earnings will be higher a decade from now. Is that a Microsoft fall into that one or no? Let me, if Microsoft bridge the bridge the gap okay. between the two. Okay. And the second is, is our companies that we felt are the more traditional value investments that are just really inexpensive. And then we call them our more commercial opportunities. And another name for them we have internally is three to ones, where there's three times the upside to the downside. Microsoft, we felt the earnings would be higher over the next 10 years. The fears are surrounding it were real, but we felt with their, at their core, what they had was growing. 
and was going to be better in 10 years. Let's not talk about what the rate of growth was going to be, just the fact it was going to be bigger was important for us to understand. But we also felt that the price that we were paying for it, it at 10, 11 times earnings instead of the cash, it was very hard to lose money for business that was growing. And we felt that the downside to the upside was at least three to one, or upside to the downside, I should have said. So that fell into both categories. It's not always a, a bright line that, that divides these, what, what is a value investment or a growth investment. And show me a growth manager that doesn't think what they bought was a value. Because if you, have a, if you pay 35 times earnings for a company growing 50% a year for the next five years, that's a good value. Right. That's the old two sides of the coin for value and growth that investors talk about. Well, there's also a third category because I've been reading your letters for years. So you guys also even do some shorting, but usually often is somewhat pair trades as well as some other things I'd love to hear about. But the one that I loved following and talked about maybe a couple of years ago, Naspers, was that, was that, the, is that still a part of the portfolio? Yes. <laughs> he hesitates to say. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm really happy to talk about one of our largest losers we've ever had. Is that right? Yeah. All right. Well, good. Let's Thus hear far it. anyway. <laughs> so Naspers is something that should not, should not exist. Nospers is a South African-based holding company, media company, that was originally the government media business. You, know, you had television stations, you had newspapers, et cetera, that, that became a public company many, many years ago. And the management team did something very smart back in 2004 or so. They put $35 million into a Chinese, Chinese tech company that is called Tencent. And Tencent is, you know, again, it flip-flops, as you mentioned, with, with certain other companies being the most valuable company in the Chinese market. And this, their investment of $35 million at its peak reached over $160 billion just for themselves. I mean, a kager of almost 80%. So that was a huge, huge return. And it dwarfed the value of everything else that they had. And what they had was, you know, a reasonable media business, cable business included, other sub-Saharan cable, you know, as well outside of South Africa, and, another, and, and an e-commerce portfolio. But if you assume zero value for both of those, their other e-commerce investments, as well as the media investments, the market was paying you tens of billions of dollars to own Nospers. So what we did was we went long Nospers and shorted out their 10 cent exposure. And the spread was in the billions of dollars and it went to the tens of billions. And so we, we lost some money along the way. What's interesting about it is, is that we're, I mean, again, I was describing no value to, to the e-commerce business and to the $400 million of EBITDA that was being thrown off on the old line media business. So it's something that shouldn't exist, but it exists. Why does this exist? Why does this quote unquote opportunity exist? And it exists because A, the management team in South Africa is less willing to take the necessary action to close the gap. They just don't care. At least they don't care today. It remains to be seen if they'll care in the future. Ultimately, we believe the discount will narrow. Ultimately, it will work out. But there can be something called being dead right, right? You can be right in 10 years, but your clients may not stick around with you long enough and, and they go on to something else. But what's interesting about it is that another reason why the gap widened out was so much interest was, was taking place in China that capital flows were going over there. And there's plenty of room in the, in the Chinese market to absorb those capital flows. And the South African market you know, couldn't absorb the capital flows. And in fact, the company, Nospers, became so big represented over 30%, or does say over 30% of the entire index, that they started you know, re-categorizing the index. And, re, re, and as a result, flows actually went the other direction. So what we have done is now that Chinese market has weakened, we've actually adapted our exposure somewhat because now you can actually own, by owning Nospers, which is a discount to Tencent, and Tencent owns so many different businesses that are non-earning assets or under-earning assets today, including assets like Tencent Music, which is about, which is soon to go public, and that you're actually owning this whole basket of assets, assuming no value for you know the other e-commerce and old line media assets as a low teens multiple on a look-through basis. That's a good value. So we'd be surprised if we don't make money longer term on it. And that's why, again, our focus is always to avoid permanent impairments of capital. Short term, this is the perfect example. Companies can trade anywhere, too high and too low. Well said. The other big part of the portfolio is often on the credit side. And you have another quote where you said, high-yield bonds are like vacation homes. You go to them when the weather is nice. And in this case, we mean by nice, we mean stormy. And you want to invest, but I actually don't know the date of this. You can tell me if this is still correct. <laughs> but yields today are crappy, I think was the technical term. 
They should take the word high out of high yield. Talk to, to us a little bit about... Except in Colorado, your home state. <laughs> yeah, totally. And here, more and more here as well. So talk to us a little bit about how you view that side of the portfolio. So high yield as an asset class is in distressed debt is periodically attractive. One doesn't need to be there, as, I, as, as I've said before, all the time. You need to get an attractive in anything, whether it's stocks or bonds, you need an attractive rate of return. So today, the high yield market is roughly a 6.5% yield in the U.S., gross yield. That sounds pretty good on the surface in the context of, of a, a treasury, a three-year treasury is like 280. So that sounds pretty interesting, you know, all else equal. But that's a gross yield. That's before any defaults, before any recoveries of those defaults. If you take history as a guide and assume, just as a placeholder, that historic defaults will be the future defaults and the recoveries historically will be the same in the future, you get to a net yield. That net yield is 2.1% lower than the gross yield. So now your yield drops from 6.5 to 4.4. That's not interesting, decidedly. And nor is 6.5% gross interesting to us either because it's not, in our view, an equity rate of return over time. Or it shouldn't be. We hope it won't be. But if you look at the 4.4% yield, that's actually right on top of the investment grade yield. So why are people buying these bonds? And there's just too much money that's chased this, this, these things down, these high-yield bonds, and people are reaching for yield. And that's always a risk, reaching for return. And so as a result, and this is true of not just high-yield bonds, but different asset classes and industry groups, we go in and out of sectors and regions based upon where there is value, which is obviously, in our view, opportunity. So it's largely, it's frequently going to where there's bad news or where there's something misunderstood. It means spending time in China today because the stock market's down 30% over there. It means spending time in 2009 on high yield because the market was getting destroyed. And in 2009, we didn't know what the Fed was going to do in the Treasury. And we were very concerned that you know, we were on the precipice of a depression. I mean, it could have happened. More things always could happen than will happen. But at the time, stocks had not priced in a depression in 2009. But they certainly had priced in a depression, in our view, in the debt markets. So we were able to buy debt with, with huge yields. I mean, excess of 30% yields with terrific you know, asset-backed loans with huge margins of safety. And that's where we allocated a lot of resources. So our portfolio went from 5% distressed debt and high yield to the low 30s in about five, six months as we aggressively allocated our resources to that, to that asset class. And that same thing's true of large cap tech. We, when we had nothing in it for years, then we went a lot into it. Didn't own any mortgage-backed securities for year forever, and then we started buying mortgage-backed whole loans. In the example I gave earlier, and we've never we had we had never until December of 2017, just a year ago, had never owned a municipal bond in the portfolio, and yet we now own Puerto Rico. You want you want to expand on that a little bit? I would love to hear the thesis there, because for a long time they were in the news, less so today. Puerto Rico, you mean? Yeah. Well, we, we were able to buy general obligation bonds and certain other you know parts of the capital structure, you know, at very large discounts. We're going back, going down into the twenties. We didn't know for sure it would be par. We felt that there was probably more bad news, or the bad news that was there was real bad news. I mean, people are the company's been devastated, you know, by the by a poor economy compounded by a major hurricane, a complete devastation, and yet we felt that there was too large of a discount. It wasn't as bad as far as these bonds were concerned, and they're worth more than 25 cents on the dollar. We did a Opportunity Zone focused podcast and noticed that recently um, on the tax incentives that the, whole country's the, the, entire, the entire yeah. island is the island is territory, zone. So yeah. hopefully that spurs some economic growth. It, it remains to be seen how those play out. But it's an interesting point that you're making, though, is you talk, about, you talk about the Opportunity Zone and the whole territories and Opportunity Zone, but decisions that are made at a point in time have long-range ramifications. We're very mindful of that. And we try and think about what's coming down the road. What is disruptive? I mean, you could bought Blockbuster Video in the mid-90s and still have it in business in five years and 10 years. And it's just, it's it's a company we wouldn't touch because we actually were short Movie Gallery and there was another company we were short as well. So I've gotten old. I've forgotten the other company. But we were short two companies in the space. But we weren't short Blockbuster. But we knew that the pipe to the home was getting fatter. We knew that pay-per-view was ultimately going to happen. And we knew that that was ultimately going to be disruptive to Blockbuster's business. So why were we going to sit there and, and try and be smarter than, than what was actually coming down technologically? 
Now, we didn't know Netflix was coming. We didn't see that. We didn't know the red envelopes were going to be delivered to your door and with CDs, which was disruptive even before the pay-per-view ended up you know, taking hold. So we're very, very cognizant. We try to be careful. These long-term decisions impact different businesses, and it impacted Puerto Rico because they took away the tax haven that it was. And it takes a long time for it to cycle through. And we just try and be aware of these things and, and think about what it looks like in 10 years. You guys mentioned kind of in some of your materials on the FPA day and other presentations, there's kind of three categories that you guys look at in credits, performing, stressed, and reorg. Are all three areas you guys pretty lightly invest, invest at this point in the cycle or are there areas you're still... Back up Puerto Rico, we're just up just a few percent. Before we get to the third main part, which is cash, there's also a farmland element I saw you guys hard, still have hard, any- we we do but it's it we shouldn't dwell on it because it's a such a small investment but we have a, the ability to do going anywhere means doing we do lots of different kinds of things and so we own farmland we own a container ship you know in the portfolio we have some interesting things in the portfolio to be careful we're a public fund we can never let these kinds of investments get to be too large because we want to make sure that if somebody once chooses to redeem that they're able to get their money back yeah i mean farmland is particularly interesting to us we we come from on my father's side, a, a family of farmers, Kansas, Nebraska. And for a long time, for a lot of the 2000s, a wonderful asset class, but then got kind of distressed for some years. But there's not, there's not a lot of opportunities for public investors to invest in farmland. There's only a couple REITs, sadly, and most of the funds are still private. But a really cool asset class. I'd love to see more development at some point. No, I agree with you. I think there should be. I think it's a great asset class. I think people have to understand what it is and and have a long-term view because you're not going to get a, you know, it's, if you think of it like a REIT, you're not going to get the big cash flow yield that a, that a, an apartment REIT will give you, but you get the appreciation over time that should be an inflation or higher. And what you're at the end of the day have is, is water. You're exporting water. And if you have water shortages, then the value of that farmland, you know, goes up over time because the value of the crops are going up over time. So we partner with a group in North Carolina that is one of the larger, they were a sizable operator themselves, but they were up and down the vertical in the farmland supply chain, owning cotton ginning facilities, as well as trucking you know, facilities and deer, John Deere dealerships, et cetera. And we partnered with them to go buy farmland because we, as we came and we looked at what the Fed was doing and this massive quantitative easing experiment which I, I liken to an academic argument that they hope will alchemize into reality. I mean, who knows what's ultimately going to happen? We're still in we're still in this period of like unknown. It's a long there'll be longer term impacts from this. I felt that inflation was a likely was a likely outcome, and still might be ultimately. Uh, we could be on a deflationary path to inflation, but I felt that for myself, and we believe in investing alongside of our clients. For myself, I wanted to own some farmland. I like it better than gold intellectually because it actually has a yield where gold you actually have to pay a cost to carry. And it's a, it's a bet on inflation at a point in time. It's protection in certain environments, non-core, has great non-correlation to the, to the stock market. And it can deliver a, an equity rate of return over time. I'm smiling because I had a couple of thoughts. I remember my old man used to say, this is years ago when farming was really out of favor to say, you know, one day farming will be important again. It used to be the farmers that drove around the Cadillacs. But I, I laugh now because we just sold some of our wheat. And I said, our farm basically does all the benefits of a treasury bill yield with none of the certainty. <laughs> right now, with we, we have mainly row crops, but I would love to diversify across blueberries and almonds and everything else around the world. We'll but be able to. This fund maybe that we've, hemp soon. Well, this fund that we've invested in is actually going to end up you know, being a fund that individuals can invest in. It's cool. going to be a core fund that the private partnerships that we've invested in are going to be, the first series is going to be converted into a new fund where the others can invest in it. Yeah, if you look at kind of the global market portfolio of what's publicly investable and what's not, a lot of the private that's missing from most investor portfolios tends to be farmland, a lot of private real estate like housing, et cetera, but maybe one day. All right. So back to the third kind of pillar of cash. You are pretty well known for not being shy about holding a big slug of cash at times. And I think right now have a pretty decent allocation as well. Maybe maybe talk about how you view that as either a, a strategic and or opportunistic sort of part of the portfolio. It's important for our investors to understand that we are bottoms-up investors. We have a macro backdrop that we consider, but you know, certainly, I mean, when we build our models and companies. We don't. By the way, when we build models, I don't want to sound like we're 
so clinical that we that we're looking every quarter and every year. We just keep things very simple and think in terms of low base and high cases in a range of in a range of outcomes. But using Microsoft Office. But using, not Google Sheets. Using <laughs> Although Excel. you guys also using own Excel. Alphabet, don't you? We do. We can talk about that too. <laughs> okay. that's a, we, we should talk about that in a minute. All right. So we think about like interest rates, interest rates going up. Interest rates could be higher in the future and they'll be, you know, for borrowing costs. So that as a function of two variables. One, base rates could be higher. Two, the spread to treasuries could be narrower. And I'm sorry, be wider because they're so narrow today. So adding the two together, bringing the two together, higher base rate and a wider spread, total higher borrowing costs. Even the base rate is lower, you can have a wider spread and still have higher borrowing costs. When we build our models, you know, we we consider a normal cost of funds. We have some company, one company I'm looking at recently that'll remain nameless that's in the United Kingdom has a current borrowing cost of three and a half percent. That's not in our model. We don't expect that to be the case. So we try and take a more conservative view and, and budget to, at four, five, and six percent. And maybe that's not conservative enough, but it's certainly more conservative than just extrapolating the recent past and moving into the future. So when we think about, you know, the macro backdrop, it's just to go and, and, and build a model to look at companies from the bottoms up and direct us to certain areas of certain asset classes or certain regions. Cash ends up in the portfolio because after going through that process, we don't find companies that meet our risk-reward parameters. The upside isn't there you know, to support the downside risk. There's not enough you know, juice for the squeeze, if you will. And so cash is entirely a byproduct. It is not meant to be a pessimistic statement. It's not meant to say that the market's expensive. It's not meant to say that that we've gone on vacation or doing our homework either. It's just meant to say that, look, we are working our butts off with our capital alongside of yours, and we aren't finding companies that meet our risk reward. And we're not just going to go. We're not just going to go and invest to invest. We're not just going to go and appease those who want us to be fully invested at all times. There will be a point where there'll be future opportunity. We're in the longest bull market, not the biggest bull market in percent returns, but the longest tenured bull market in history, second longest economic expansion in history. And we always tend to underperform in the later stages of these cycles. And we look at this and to us, cash is like a good asset class, not as a top-down decision, but if we don't see it, it's there and it's actually optimistic. It's optimistic that we expect that there will be future opportunities for us to pull from that cash and invest. Because at those points in time when you need to make those investments, good luck trying to find the liquidity to sell the other things you want to go and swap into into whatever you think is attractive at that moment in time. We have a pretty broad range of ages of people listening to this podcast, many of which are on the younger side that maybe had invested through 2008, 2009, but probably not the late 90s bear market as well in the US. But maybe talk a little bit about as we go through cycles and think about long term, I mean, it's so hard in our world where investors want to talk about months or, or quarters, even years. And you famously came on to FPA in the mid 90s in a pretty difficult environment for value investing in general when it came to the late 90s. Maybe talk a little bit about that experience and how you even survived it. This is terrific. We <laughs> talked about Nosper. He's talking about me hardly surviving the late 90s. Well, you, you decided to stay on for a second hour and we get all the good, all the good stuff. <laughs> the late 90s were tough. The late 90s, we underperformed the market massively in 1998, 1999. I was on the cover of Money Magazine in 1998, and it was literally like the Sports Illustrated curse. My performance, the performance of the fund, relative to the market, from that point forward, I looked like an idiot. But it was never as stupid as I appeared. There's a lot of, what was actually happening at the time, a lot of ridiculous investing and bidding up of companies in the internet and tech space to levels that were untoward, unheard of, and ultimately unsupportable, as, as we came to find out. Companies were trading at levels that were more expensive even then in 1929. Companies, instead of trading, you know, RCA in 1929, 30 was trading like 86 times earnings. And you had companies trading at 500 times revenues. I mean, it was complete insanity. You know, it was happening. Oh, here's a $2 million revenue company. Let's go value it at a billion dollars. I mean, it was nuts. So we, in those two years, we were down slightly and the market was up. We were in the high 50s behind the market over two years. In two years. I think the only reason that we had any money left in our fund was that people forgot the either either A forgot they had money with us or B felt badly and and didn't want to be the didn't want to redeem. Or may have passed away. 
Yeah, but there's <laughs> there's that <laughs> That's the third bucket. But but then 2001 and 02 came around, and we ended up being validated. So I mean, in 1999, the stock market was up 21 percent and change, and and yet more than half. That's the S and P 500, and yet more than half the stocks in the S and P declined in value that year. So it was not a broad based market. Value was out of favor. High yield was out of favor, and small cap was out of favor. So we allocated our resources to high yield, small cap, and value. And we're very, you know, aggressive about it. And we made money in 00, 01, and 02. And yet each of those three years, the stock market was down. So when you look at 2002 and look back over the five years, including 1998 and 1999, which is a terrible start for that five-year cycle, we ended up 42 points ahead of the market. So something to be said for having a philosophy and sticking to it and not always trying to worry about what's happening this month or next month. Always think about where you're going to be in five to seven years. That's how we think about this, that in terms of rolling periods. You had mentioned something that I think is important where we talk a lot about with valuations, which you know so many people want to focus on what's the good buys and what might be cheap. But the challenge with a lot of investing approaches, it's, it's avoiding the big, really expensive, nasty stocks too, you know? And so do you see any echoes? You know, that was obviously a painful period, you know, and this period has been a graveyard for a lot of really famous managers have really struggled. You guys um, seem to just keep chugging along and I think only had two or three down years since inception. Do you see any kind of rhyming right now with today's market with the late 90s or nothing comparable? No, because I'll, I'll show you a chart when we're, we're done. I think, I think I have it in my bag. But we focus on skew and the skew and the standard deviation between the cheapest stocks in the market and the average stocks in the market. And in 1999 to begin of 2000, you had a massive skew. There were the cheapest companies in the market were trading at a big discount to the average price company in the market. And that gave us a huge opportunity. Today, there's very little skew. The difference between the cheapest stock and the average stock is, is fairly narrow. So there isn't that opportunity for us to go in and spread our wings and show what we can do because the market's been moving more or less up or down together. The last time we had a little bit of skew in the market was at the end of 15, beginning of 16. And if you recall that moment in time, we ended up with banks and energy companies and certain Telecom-related businesses were out of favor, so there was a little pop, a little fragmentation, in, you know, in balkanization in the market that created some opportunity. We were able to put a lot of capital into banks, in particular, at that point in time. But ever since then, it went right back to this level of very, very little skew, and so we don't see that same that rhyming. And I wish we did, because I'd love to be able to say that our portfolio is dirt cheap, like it was in 2000. It's not. It's not. It's not expensive, and we can look ourselves in the mirror today with greater honesty and satisfaction that our portfolio is is a more reasonable portfolio for us to make money on over the next five to seven years than our portfolio was even a year ago. So you're positioned a fair amount, I believe, in kind of what people would consider tech or large tech, IT maybe, a smattering of financials. And feel free to talk. We were going to talk about Alphabet a little bit, but also the extension of this question is, how does the rest of the world look to you too? Does does it look better beyond our shores or you spend most of the time finding opportunity here? On the one hand, here is more expensive than elsewhere. But on the other hand, you can invest here, particularly in large cap companies, and get, get tremendous exposure offshore. I think it's the mid-50s of the S&P 500 companies have revenues coming from outside the United States. So less than half their revenues are coming domestically. So you can get a lot of good international exposure by buying U.S. companies, but they're priced, you know, quite well. There are there is opportunity offshore, but like for like companies in different parts of the world trade were trading at similar values. The Chinese blow up, that's less true in the last few months than it had been. But if you could go and buy, you know, an Oracle here or an SAP in, in Germany, Unilever in the Netherlands versus Procter and Gamble here, Google here versus Google and a Facebook and, you know, compared to an Alibaba and a Tencent, you know, over over in China. These companies are trading at similar valuations. When you look at a lot of these different markets, the the level of valuation looks cheaper on the surface, but there's not the same governance that exists there that you have here. In fact, in China, you have to accept the fact that you don't actually own the company. You own a WOFE that owns part of a VIE that the, the government may decide you don't have a right to in the future. So there's certainly that risk that exists. But I like the fact that you got the SEC looking over these our company's shoulders. 
and and we think that the U.S. will continue to be an attractive market for many years to come. That does not mean there aren't opportunities outside the U.S. We have been finding more of late. I don't want to talk to about most of them on the podcast because we're, we're still in the midst of buying them. But if you look at a company like Alphabet, there's some of these companies that exist overseas, companies like Tencent, and we mentioned Nospers already. There's lots of hidden value in these companies. And you think about what value is. And value, we, we think about a margin of safety. As, I, as we talked about earlier, as being a definition of value, at least our definition of value. And you look back over time, and the value used to be, as we started talking with Graham and Dottie in type of fashion, the value of the, of the balance sheet, and it's morphed to being the business. You have to, But you have to understand the business. And that's not as easy to understand the business as just understand the balance sheet. It's easier to understand a piece of real estate and rather than what a, a business might be worth and cash flow might throw off over the next five or 10 years. And so there's more chances to be wrong, I would argue, but there's also a lot more chances to have growth. And let's take Alphabet as an example. Google, as most, most know it. Google's market cap is $700 million. $700 billion, which was only $700 million. $700 billion. And the company's got $100 billion in cash. So take that out. Now it's $600 billion. The company's estimate for next year, these are just consensus estimates, they're not ours, you know, it's $41 billion of income. You're trading at 15 times earnings. Next year's earnings, if you take out the cash. But there's more adjustments that one could really make. They're, they're, they're burning through after taxes a few billion dollars a year on, on moonshots. They got companies like Waymo that they own in there. I haven't taken that value out. It's not worth zero. Waymo is, you know, last year's, I mean, well, I don't know the numbers for 2017, but the 2016 numbers, they drove 635,000-ish miles autonomously with only 100 and I think it's 24 disengagements. And you go look at the next nearest one, which was Waymo, I'm sorry, which is Cruise, which is owned by General Motors. It drove less than 10,000 miles and had 140 some odd disengagements with a fraction of the miles driven. SoftBank made an investment in Cruise, GM's Cruise, and capitalized at the equivalent of 11 and three quarter billion-ish. I don't know what Waymo's worth. If, and I'm not saying the number that SoftBank and Mayoshi-san paid for, for Cruise is the right number. Well, let's just use it as a starting point. If 11 three quarter billion is right, is right for Cruz, Waymo is worth a lot more. We are using in our model 25 billion, but I mean, we've seen other analysts come up with numbers as high as 175 billion. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying 25 billion is right. It's not zero. You've got all the other non-earning assets, assets like Lyft that they own a piece of, Airbnb they own a piece of, the non-earning assets. They have YouTube. Now, YouTube, they don't, we don't know exactly what it's earning. It's not zero, but I would argue it's probably still under-earning you know, what it could be earning you know, five, you know, five years from now. So you, could, you should take off something out of that $600 billion we had left. The $700 billion market cap, less $100 million in cash, less something for these non-earning assets. And the $40 you know, billion in earnings that you're going to have next year, if that number is the right number, you can add something back to that for the, the moonshot you know, investments they've got. So the multiple ends up being lower still for a company that was that grew twenty percent last quarter. I mean, it's that's not a that's not an expensive stock. I have a soft spot in my heart for Google because you mentioned as a Tahoe guy, I used to live in Tahoe, and Google used to throw their pre-IPO yearly parties in Tahoe. So they'd rent out all of Squaw, and for someone who was essentially a glorified ski bum at the time, I was friends with all the industry folk that were local. And so all my Google friends from San Francisco, you would only get like one invite and two drink tickets. But my friends helped set up like the tents and they had like nine tents with like flamethrowers and ice sculptures. Again, this is pre-IPO. So they would just spend all the money in the world. My friend came home with an entire roll of probably 300 drink tickets. He's like the guy that helped me set it up. He just here, you guys can have it. Anyway, so we used to go to the Google, the annual Google party, but I got ejected because girl came up and looked at me and I didn't look like Google material. Had a big beard, was wearing a puffy jacket. And she says, which Google office do you work in? And I said, with utmost confidence, as portfolio manager, we know that that's, you display confidence. You can fool anyone. I said, Singapore or something, somewhere in Asia. And she knew I was probably lying, but couldn't tell why. She goes, what's the address? And I just named some address. 
And she was befuddled and just like stormed off. But eventually I got kicked out of the party. But that was pre-IPO. Things were much more fun when they were private companies. I'm trying to think about what part of that story gives you the soft spot. <laughs> a soft spot to hate it. I've been short for years. Just kidding. I'm a quan. I don't even know. We probably own it. I have no idea. We may own it. We may not. But that's interesting. So you, you touched on something prior to kind of the Google thesis, which... I think it's interesting that not a lot of people, people talk about as far as the U.S. exposure, what they don't talk about, everyone thinks about country and equity investing or sectors. You could easily have companies domiciled in Spain or UK or anywhere that would have all of their revenue in another country. So it's really somewhat of an arbitrary. And I've been waiting for a enterprising ETF company. It's not what we do, but for someone to build revenue-based indices rather than location-based. But if you're listening, Blackstone, feel free to steal that idea. It's not something we do. But, but it's always something that I've thought about, but rarely people talk about. It's a good example because we bought a number of years ago, Aon. Aon was based in Chicago at the time. And then it, for tax reasons, it moved to, moved to the UK. I mean, less than 10% of its revenues or so come from the United Kingdom. And that's, yeah, that's where it's based. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like artificial doors that people put up. All right, so we only have you for so much longer. We'll talk about a few more things. You guys list on your website, I mean, it's required information anyway, but portfolio managers investing in your own funds, and you mentioned investing in your own funds. Is that something you find important? I mean, having skin in the game, or is that something you think is just kind of an afterthought and it doesn't really matter as much because you already have exposure? What, what do you guys think in that term? I think, I think it has to be true. Yeah. I think mean, it has to be. I mean, I, I believe that you, if you don't do that, you... Are work, I mean, and, and presumably you're working, you either A, don't believe in what you're doing and you're putting your money someplace else and then why should everybody else put their money someplace else? Or you're spending money on on companies, spending time on companies that, you know, that you're considering investing for yourself, that's re, you're, the resource that you would other, should otherwise be applied to the portfolio that you're managing. So we feel very strongly that that your energy should be, be aligned with your pocketbook, which should be aligned with your clients. We agree. I mean, we're, we are consistently frustrated. I put 100% of my net worth in our funds and strategies, but there's it's there's a stat that Morningstar does. It's like 50 to 80% of mutual fund managers have zero, not even the less than 100K. It depends on category course, but zero invest in the fund. We've always thought that was a little odd, to say the least. But I, I do want to make a distinction. Though. I think it's a, we're talking about equity funds now because if a bond manager, I can understand why they would have less. You can be a successful manager, focus on that, and then put money with an equity manager. It's a different risk profile. Right, totally agree. All right, so as a former education guy and for someone that works in a world and sector that is notorious for having a massive education gap with investors where, and, I, and I'm not just talking about individuals in retail, but pros alike, where I think it's really hard to bridge that gap. How do you guys approach chatting with investors? I mean, there's a lot of famous research out there on people, you know, and fund managers that the time-weighted returns are, you know, so much worse than the dollar-weighted returns and people chasing performance and everything else is it i oscillate so half time i spend thinking it's a very worthwhile cause to try to educate people the other time i say people are going to be human and do stupid shit over and over and over again just throw up my hands what what's what are what are your thoughts on education in general and, and approach to y'all's shareholder base i think both your statements you made are true i think some people don't want to learn and you can't teach somebody who doesn't want to learn and so it does make sense on the one hand to just to let the performance speak for itself and cash will go in and out based on 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 visceral reactions tied to recent performance. On the other hand, many investors do want to learn. I can't imagine there's anybody listening to your podcast who's not here right now listening to this who doesn't want to be educated. So when we write and when we speak, we speak to them. I don't know what percentage of our client base it is, but even if it's 1%, we owe it to them to educate them because it should be helpful to them over the longer term for their own portfolio, whether they're only invested with us or they're invested with lots of other people. When do you guys do your annual annual FPA day? Don't you guys have an annual day? We do a, we do a 
biannual. Biannual now. <laughs> well, it's always been. Okay. We never we've never done. We, the world doesn't change enough for okay. to warrant you know to warrant annual and we're value investors and so it's an expensive day to put on. Uh, too slow. Are you guys you guys hold in Santa Monica? Where is it? In Santa Monica. Santa Monica. Beautiful. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because we, we've thought a lot about this over the years, and we at one point had reached out to all of our followers, and and you know, thinking about someone had asked me, Meb, if I could tell my college student or someone that's really interested in investing where to go to learn about investing, and other than just saying something dumb like my podcast or something, it, it's it's a hard answer, and so we'd actually asked our audience, and I said, what's like the one book you would give someone? And we got three hundred answers. In the top 10, some of them, despite the fact they're great books, are not really a wonderful book. Like a first investor book is not going to be security analysis. I mean, it could be, but God bless you if you can get through it. I don't think I've ever gotten through it. But it's it's a we struggle with it and we continue to, to, to do it. But Well, you're also speaking to many different kinds of people and investing is so idiosyncratic. People have, we all have different risk tolerances. We all have different return needs. We all have different net worths. We all have different time horizons. And we all have different psychological wherewithal to withstand market volatility. And so it isn't one message we try and deliver to our clients. And, you know, it's, well, there is in terms of how we invest as one, we try and make it one clear message, but we recognize with the types of examples we use and types of books that we recommend that, that our investors are different. So we try and find different ways to connect with different people and yet still say the same thing. So for someone who speaks a lot to, I imagine, institutions, RIAs, advisors, individuals, all, all of your various shareholders, what, what sort of advice or thoughts would you want to convey about them thinking not just about your fund, but investing in general? Is there anything that like you're like, oh my God, I always want to say this? Is there a mindset or something you want to pass on at all? Well, I think to be successful in this business and, and to have a reasonable quality of life as well, one has to be okay with being fired. I don't care if you're a portfolio manager in a, in a mutual fund or separately managed accounts or a RIA, a stockbroker, an institutional manager, you know, working for a foundation or endowment, pension, et cetera. You have to be okay that you're not going to please everybody all the time. And if, and if the expectation is somebody looking for that pleasure, that you can want that yearly outperformance, then I think that you're asking for a disaster. I think you, we're more comfortable with this thinking longer term and making sure our clients think longer term to the best of our ability. And there's points in time when we have we go through cycles where we've got a redemption cycle, we have a contribution cycle, and it's an ebb and flow to it. And far be it from me to ever complain about that because I'm very fortunate to be in the position I am to have the kinds of clients we do have and have the business that we do have and have the partners that I have in you know at First Pacific Advisors and starting with with Mark Mark and Brian as my co-PMs. Very, very fortunate in that regard. But we can't expect that if the world is not, if the world is entirely rational, there's no place for active management. So if the world then, I would argue, is not entirely rational, that there will be opportunities to take advantage of emotion, to sell into favorable emotion and and buy into, into moments when people are fearful. I can't then expect with our asset base, with as much money as we manage, that our clients are not going to be, to a great extent, the market. So you can't have it both ways. It's sort of the agony actually of being a public fund manager. You know, it's, it's trying not to get too despondent when assets go down a bunch. We've experienced it many times and also trying to get too excited and think you're the most brilliant person in the world when they go up. What, what do you think about sentiment right now? Do you feel that it's euphoric like at other times or do you think it's just pockets or do you think it's euphoria is even required for, for this bull to end? I don't think it's euphoric. I think a lot of what was happening in the market today, it's, it's, it's need-based. And I think that in Bridgewater had this study that they did that, that I saw that, that said over the last, the market over the last couple of decades is driven 40% by the decline in interest rates and interest rates have been going down for, for 35 years for the most part, except for the last year or so. And, and I don't know if 40% is the right number or not. I have not done the work myself, but it's certainly a very big number. And I can certainly easily get to 20% and not to spend the time on the call and how the math works. But I think that with rates going down, people have not been able to have the a safe conservative alternative in, in conservative fixed income as they've had in the past. And 
if you had, you know, a, a reasonable savings, let's just say you're fortunate enough to have two and a half million dollars in savings, which most people in this country don't have, but just use that for the math. A decade ago, you could have had $90,000 for taxes from that just buying a five-year treasury. Today, that number is, I don't know, 60,000, something like that. You're down by a third. And if you were living off that money, if that's the, in this, in this hypothetical, if you were living off that money, what do you do with that $30,000 gap? You have, only have a few choices. You can reduce your lifestyle, hard to do. You can spend principal, hard to do. You can take on more risk. Well, that seems easy because my advisor is telling me that I can't lose over on this. But I think that's problematic. I do think that um, the, and as a result, what we've seen is there has been an increase in, in household investment in stocks. And what I did was, and I'm going to show you a chart that you can use in one of your- Yeah, we'll post them your, in the show notes. That, that I think is interesting. It's, it's household equity investments. Is it an indicator of market returns? So what we did was, is we took the household investment in financial assets- and then pulled it forward 10 years and inverted the curve. The reason why we pulled it forward 10 years and the reason why we inverted it is so that it could align better with the other line item of the chart, which is trailing 10-year returns. It's as if to say, is does the household investment in financial assets suggest what the next 10 years returns will be like? And you can see what this chart looks like. It moves up and down together. Well, you can see the the peak here, which appears to be a trough in this chart, that was back in 2000. And the returns in the next 10 years were solidly, and that was almost 50% in your exposure at the time, or the give or take. And the returns were solidly negative in that next 10-year period. So today, where we are, when looking forward, household exposure to financial assets is the second highest level it's been since the early 1960s. It's approaching 45%. And if the past predicts the future, which it doesn't, there'll be movement around this. It suggests that the future rates of return over the next 10 years will be in the very low single digits. And it won't be. Maybe it's slightly negative. Maybe it's 6 7%. It's not going to be the historic averages. Do you see any catalysts? I don't know that there has to be one, and they're often obvious in retrospect, but that would cause the most pain as far as like the, the this bull market to end, you know, whether it's just valuation, but is it dead? Is it Fed policy? Any catalyst that you think could derail? There's so, so many variables. And as I said earlier, more things could happen than will happen. Catalyst is, is it a continuing rise in interest rates that, that freezes out the consumer in, in, in the US and in other countries. I mean, you're, it's harder to buy a home today than it was before because your borrowing costs are higher than it was you know, a year or so ago. And it's also true for companies that have to refinance their debt. There is more. There are more zombie companies today that exist around the world because you know they can afford to pay their interest. They're just going to have a problem refinancing their principal. So there's more of those companies. And so rates going up are going to go push those companies. You know, over the edge. Many of those companies over the edge with more bankruptcies. And so a recession, a rates going up, a recession can be an you know could be the, the the driver. I don't know what it will be. I know there's a lot of things that will magnify it and potentially catalyze it, including including the rise of corporate bonds. Corporate bonds a decade ago were $4.5 trillion. And it broke down roughly, call it $1.5 trillion in high-yield bonds and levered loans and, and $3 trillion in investment grade. Today, it's it, we're, talk, we're talking over $9 trillion in corporate bonds. We've had a doubling. So the rate of corporate bond growth has, has, been, has been a double of the rate of, of the economic growth. And you can't say that if a company borrows money that has in some form you know, found that some of those dollars have found their way into the economy. Clearly been some, it's been similar to some degree. We can argue about to what degree. But of the $9 trillion, you've now have, you have $3 trillion of high-yield bonds and lever loans. So that's a doubling as well. And you've got $6 trillion of corporate bonds, a doubling, of, of investment-grade corporate bonds, a doubling. If you look inside, if you were to unpack this a little bit of the, the investment-grade universe, which was $3 trillion a decade ago and, 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 and $6 trillion today, a decade ago you had 30% or so, a little less than 30% that were triple B. So call it 800 billion, 900, somewhere in that range. Today, of the 6 trillion in investment grade, more than half are triple B, one notch above junk. So you've had a quadrupling of triple B credits in the US. And that's going to pose a problem 
in the next downturn. Maybe we'll start the tail risk equivalent of the corporate bond bearish fund. People people would probably love that as an ETF. <laughs> Buy a bunch of puts on the on the corporate indices. We got to start winding down. I, I promised I would only keep you for a certain amount of time and we've already passed it, but I have probably five more pages of questions. We might have to have you back in, in six months or a year, but there's, there's a couple of questions we always ask people at the end. One in particular has been, as you look back over your career, what's been the most memorable investment or trade? It could be good, it's bad. We've covered a lot of your tough ones today, man. So you can give a good one too, <laughs> or you can give both. You can give, well, it's usually the first one that comes to mind. Well, the most memorable for sure for me was, was really taking a portfolio and shifting it to distress and high yield in 2009. I, I, it was really, really fun. We just felt it was so hard to lose money. It's always funny to me because was that a really difficult decision or was it actually kind of like a Christmas morning feeling? I mean, I, I, f- I feel like, you know, the world was collapsing so much around us. I remember being at a value investing conference and watching a famous hedge fund manager speak. And he said, you know, here's the, I like this stock at 10. You know, I think you can go to 30. And while he was speaking, the stock went down to five. You know, is that sort of environment where like things in every day, like it was just going crazy. I'll close with this. I don't think it's like Christmas morning because that means the presents are there. I think it's like Christmas Eve where the tree is dressed and we really do expect that Santa Claus is coming because he's come every year. That's a good analogy. We're going to wind out. Where can people find more if they want to follow what y'all are doing, your writings, your portfolio management information? What are the resources? Where do they follow you guys? www.fpafunds.com is our website and our fund that I, I'm a co-managing partner of the firm and the fund that I manage is the FPA Crescent Fund that we're talking about here today. Awesome. I, I was going to end this. Or I was going to ask you about this, but maybe we can just end this with the acronym WTF, which is what your mom asked you what it famously meant and said, wow, that's fantastic. And now she uses it all the time. <laughs> so that's it's actually my brother's initials who's visiting right now. So I, uh, we have a lot of WT mugs and hats at our house. So every time I see it from now on, I'll say, wow, that's fantastic. Wayne, as his name. <laughs> Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Listeners, we'll post show notes, some of these charts, all the links to FPA and all other goodies for the holidays on mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. Send us your thoughts feedback at themebfavorshow.com. Any questions, comments, complaints, etc. You can listen to the show, subscribe on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, my favorite breaker. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.